Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST99, the Zoog's Rift album, Water. We, uh, we've had a few Zoog's Rift records uh, in the past. They've been uh, mind blowers, and this one is no exception, Brent. Yeah, and we have a special guest this week, Ryan. E. Bentley O'Brien is on the podcast. Yes. yes. Master of the bass guitar and knife solo. Yep, you'll hear all about it in this awesome interview we have up coming up with him. And you'll also hear in this interview uh, that he takes me by surprise and, and mentions that he actually worked for SST, which I didn't know until he mentioned it right in the middle of the interview. So you can hear me, you can literally hear the gears in my brain grinding while I'm trying to think of pertinent <laughs> questions to ask him. <laughs> there is also like an audible gasp of surprise, like, what? <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. It was a nice was... surprise. Yeah. Hey, uh, can I kick off the spiels with a question for you? Go. I kind of feel like whenever I make recommends to you, you're kind of like, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. And then you never really look into them. <laughs> yeah, whereas I do. I, yeah, I do. Whereas I always look into them. Like recently I uh I picked up that DeLorean's LP that you recommended and I quite enjoy that. Oh, right on. Some Japanese Zappa esque stuff. Okay. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about a couple of recommends I made some episodes ago to see whether you bothered to check them out. The first is a band called Rain Sanction Brand. Yep. Uh I did check out the album that you told me to listen to, Mariposa, it's awesome. And I definitely need to find some some rain sanction. So before we recorded tonight, you were telling me about a work trip you were going on where you were squeezing in a, a trip to a record store that specializes in Indian punk rock. So you can look for that one for me or any other rain sanction. <laughs> okay. I really do okay. like it. Um, the guitar player, Mark Gentry, I think is his name is a total kinhead, you can tell. Like, there is a song on that album called Loaded Decision where it sounds like Greg Ginn's playing guitar. Yeah, I think that that band is really, really cool and, like, they just don't really they really get any street cred. Yeah, the other one you told me to check out was Middle Class Homeland, which I did. Oh, oh yeah, the post-punk middle class. Yep, uh, I liked it. I did. It didn't blow me away, but I could tell it was good. I just maybe wasn't in the mood for it or something, you know? Huh. I was expecting a little bit more enthusiasm. If I saw it for like 10 bucks, I would buy it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it usually goes for a bit more than that, actually. I'm sure it does. So let, let me ask you this then. Are you, are you open to another recommend? Always. Okay. This is a label recommend, and it ties back to the DeLoreans, in fact, because you recommended that DeLorean's LP, but also the label, mm -hmm. Beyond, 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 or something like that. Beyond, Beyond is Beyond, yep. Right, right. So I'm starting to dig into some of their releases, and uh, I see some promise there. I wanted to recommend a label for you called We Empty Rooms. Have you ever mm -hmm. heard that one? Never. So We Empty Rooms is like an indie label from Castlemaine, uh, Australia. Mm-hmm. And it's run by these two dudes, Jem and Jace, who play in a band called Dead. Hmm. You've ever have you ever heard of Dead? 
No, I haven't. Yeah, so Dead are good. And you should check out Dead. But you should also check out We Empty Rooms. And I bet you there's some releases on there that you would like in the the noisy, maybe even doom rock type mm-hmm. of vein. Okay. Um, but another band that I really like on there... Uh, on We Empty Rooms, the label is a band called Vaz, V-A-Z, or Z. Have you ever heard of Vaz? No, never. So Vaz is uh, comprised of a couple of guys from a old amphetamine reptile band called Hammerhead. Oh, I know them. Yeah, and I think you'd like Vaz too. And then there's another band on We Empty Rooms that I think you'd probably like, which you may be more likely to have heard of, called Federation X. I've heard of them, yep. Yeah, so I think you should check out that label, We Empty Rooms. They've got a Bandcamp page and a, like a Discogs page, and they do lots of distro for that type of stuff. Okay. So check it out. I will. That's it. No more spiels for me. Okay. Well, I think we mentioned last week, Ryan, that we were going to be hooking up at a record sale here. Ah, uh, yes. And I was going to ask you to spiel about some of your favorite finds, and I'll do the same. Should I go first? Definitely. Since I have mine all sitting here? Yeah. And you're currently swiveling around your office trying to find all of yours? Yeah, they're in a pile here somewhere. First, I want to talk about this uh, dude that that we talked to there. So I was selling records. Well, we both were selling records at this thing. And uh, before the sale started, the other like sellers can come and look around, right? And this guy pulls out this older gentleman pulls out a pink fairies record that i was selling it's like a compilation of older pink fairy stuff and and buys it off me and says i played on this my name's twink i wasn't sure i heard him right and i said pardon me and he he goes my name's twink so i knew twink well i knew he was in the pink fairies but i also know him from his connection to kind of the waronzo records label which is uh owned by nick solomon of the Bevis Frond, he actually plays on an album with Nick Solomon called uh, Bevis and Twink, which is a really awesome album uh, that came out, I don't know, 1990-ish, I think. It's called Magic Eye. And he also played in a band called Magic Muscle on an album called 100 Miles Below, an awesome Magic Muscle live album with this guy Adrian Shaw, or Aid Shaw, as he sometimes is known, who has a bunch of solo albums also on Nick Solomon's label and also plays in the Bevis Front currently and for a while he's played in the band. So it was really cool talking to Twink. We talked a little bit about his time in the Pink Fairies. Listeners of this podcast will know uh, the song Do It by the Pink Fairies that he played on, which was, of course, covered by the Rollins Band and their EP was named after it. Uh, He played in The Pretty Things on the SF Sorrow album, probably one of their most famous albums. He's just, he's played with tons of people, and it was really cool talking to him. And he has a new album out, Think Pink Volume 4, Return to Deep Space with a bunch of Canadian players, which is why he was in Canada. He was touring, and he happened to be at this record sale selling a bunch of his records. Ian Blurton is on it from Change of Heart. And Come On, pretty famous Canadian indie rock bands. Jay Ferguson of Sloan plays on it. Uh, Arlen Thompson from Wolf Parade is on it. And the main band is this British Columbia band called Moths and Locusts. 
And it's great sounding too. It's mastered by Bob Weston. So there you go. And I picked up some of his stuff, uh, got him to sign some stuff. That was really cool. It was great talking to him. What a surprise. Yeah, it was, it was really great. Really random. Really random. Yep. What else did I get, Ryan? Oh, I think I mentioned this last week, but you had picked up for me in one of your crazy Discogs deals that you were working on, this Cargo Cult Texas Biscuit Bombs <laughs> Two-Headed yeah. Cobra compilation, which is amazing. So thanks for that, Ryan, nice and I've been wanting that forever. You know it. Uh, what? Here's what all I found at the sale. I found a really good copy of St. Vitus Five on vinyl. It's the Southern Lord reissue, but... I don't have it on vinyl. I only have it on CD, so that was cool. I found an Andy McCoy solo album, Too Much Ain't Enough. Andy McCoy, of course, was the guitar player in Hanoi Rocks. We were spinning that in your office, and you were making fun of it. (laughs) How could I not? Yeah. Here's one of my coolest picks um, that I found, Suicidal Tendencies, Lights, Camera, Revolution on vinyl. Probably my favorite suicidal album, and I've never owned it. I don't think I've ever owned a copy of this, actually. It's one of those albums I probably dubbed off somebody on cassette. I've heard it a gazillion times, uh, but it never gets old, and great to have a copy on LP. I don't think it's ever been reissued either. This is the original Epic Records LP. Uh, I finally picked up a copy of Circle Jerks Wonderful on vinyl. It's the only Circle Jerks I don't have. Again, heard it a zillion times, never owned a copy. What's oh. the uh, the bombs song on there again? Uh, making the bombs. Making the bombs, yep. right? Yeesh. <laughs> uh, tar babies, gonna need this in a couple weeks. Fried milk. Nice. That was great to find. Uh, TSOL. This is the comp of their first two singles. Great to have that. And then when I got home, there was a bunch of stuff waiting for me, Ryan. I got. When I was at your house, I saw the Screaming Trees Sweet Oblivion Deluxe Edition on your shelf and ordered it for myself. Double disc. Got to get it. Got that. So that was great to have. That was waiting for me when I got home. And I got a sweet package from Get Hip Records. I got the new Ugly Beats album. The new Knox Boys album. Do you know this band, Ryan? The Knox Boys? No. It's really awesome. Uh, Brand new on Get Hip. And I got this... You'll know this, Ryan, is one of my all-time favorite records by one of my all-time favorite bands. This is the 30th anniversary edition of the Cynics album, Rock and Roll. Oh, that, that's one of their best ones for sure. Yeah. What's what's special about this edition? It's a double LP with some cool liner notes. Uh, that dude that wrote that book that's in The New Bomb Turks, the Gunk. Oh, yeah. Uh, what's the book called? Gunk Punk. That one. He writes the liner notes to it. It's a gatefold. Mine came with a poster, which was awesome. It comes with a second disc uh, that was recorded live at a radio station. I actually already have it on a separate LP, but if it says Cynics, I'm buying it. So great to have that. I got the new single by this awesome garage band called The Night Times. I'm busy, busy listening (laughs) right now. You've got a big to-do list. And I was thinking about that Circle Jerks record Ryan, it actually has the song I, I, and I on it. Do you know what's cool about that song? I don't. It is an unused Flesh Eater song written by Chris oh. Desjardins and uh, Tito LaRiva that they wrote 
way, way back in the early days of the Flesh Eaters and never recorded. And then years later, Keith Morris resurrected it. Nice. Interesting little tidbit there. And do you know who plays bass on this record? On Wonderful? Yeah. Uh, is it Xander? Say it again. Xander. <laughs> Bring your Spanish guitar. Is it Xander Sloss? Yeah. Couldn't miss the opportunity to have you do your Joe Strummer impression saying Xander. Very, very terrible Joe Strummer impression. Your turn. Who? No particular order, right? No particular order. Okay. I got some really cool Canadian LPs, actually. I picked up uh, a copy of the Gruesomes LP, Tyrants of Teen Trash on Aug Records. Classic. It is a classic Canadian garage rock LP. Um, Similar to some of the other releases you bought, I have never owned this record on LP, but I picked it up, the SNFU album, and no one else wanted to play. Amazing album. Just insanely amazing album. SNFU uh, never, ever disappoints. And uh, for Canadiana, the other thing I picked up that was pretty neat is a 12-inch EP by a band called The Modernettes from British Columbia, B.C., it's called Hitsville, and it's kind of a live 12-inch. Pretty hard to find. Yeah, we were rocking that in your office, and I was grooving pretty hard to it. Yeah, I picked up a bunch of TSOL records. Apparently, unfortunately, I picked up this one called Hit and Run. <laughs> it's, but, not so, uh, it's not so bad, but you probably yeah. won't like it. Yeah, I mean, I like Dance With Me and Beneath the Shadows. I picked up those. I have I had them on dub years ago. I find some pretty okay reissues and then there was a cheap copy of this hit and run album and then right away you're like you're not gonna like that it's too metal (laughs) it's the metal years tsol but it's better than their later the one that i think that came after it called strange love oh yeah oh i did pick up another canadian release uh by a band called uic Mm -hmm. the wise sessions they're uh they're another kind of old school canadian punk garage band also i believe their one album is on aug records just like the gruesomes it is i have it yeah uh i picked up a few records from you actually that i was quite pleased to pick up alex chilton box bottom that's a big one yeah we were listening to that in your office too it was great it's good i picked up a copy of the gears rocking at ground zero i was rocking that one today in the afternoon it's a classic another classic i picked up which I was really enjoying listening to this afternoon as well. The Feelies, Time for a Witness. Mm-hmm. They're a, they're a great band, man. I picked up a couple. You saw these, a couple of uh, butthole surfers, bootlegs, demos, live LPs. Yeah. And then the final one that I picked up, just on my pile here, as I can grab it, anyways, was a uh, a re-release of an EP by a band called Great Plains. And Great Plains had a couple of albums and some singles, at least, I think at least one, maybe two, on Homestead Records. I have one. The album's all purple. That's all I remember about it. Yeah. Well, Great Plains, this one is the Mark, Don, and Mel EP, re-released with uh, some bonus tracks. It's re-released on Rerun Records. 
and uh, always always happy to pick up some more great planes really weird stuff like their their later records i guess are maybe a little bit more accessible but some really cool tunes on here when uh when i put it on my buddy graham was here and you know graham he plays in a band called beaver squadron yep and beaver squadron kind of sound like the damned x and the flesh eaters like all mixed together and they've even got a, a female singer as well and the first track on this record by great plains is called the way she runs a fever and i was like man that sounds just like beaver squadron and this is from 1983 so it was a cool listen today that's it it sounds like we both uh, have a pretty good haul yeah man it's never enough though is it it never is no, no. <laughs> not even close not even close yeah do you uh do you want to get your brains ripped out or do you have more spiels no i want to get my brains ripped out let's do it history lesson part one all right brant so we're going back into zoog's territory and it's a wild ride yeah it is so last time we heard from Zoog's Rift, Ryan, was the Looser Than Clams compilation, SST 88. Greatest that's, hits. That's his greatest hits. And before that was <laughs> was the Island of Living Puke LP, SST 77. I noticed the catalog numbers. Did you notice that? I didn't notice it until I wrote it down. 77 for Living Puke, 88 yeah. for Clams, and now we're on 99. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Whoa. I wonder if anyone's ever noticed that except maybe Chuck Dukowski <laughs> or someone, right? I don't think that's a coincidence. No, there's no way that is. Yeah. And I mean, we're, we now encounter a bit of a break from Zoogs until we get, how many, four in a row? Yeah, four in a row. Yeesh. So. Right at uh, SST120. Starting then, we get four Zoogs in a row. I'm already starting to brace myself for it. Book that month off, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you go back to our Island of Living Puke episode, number 77, we had a great guest on there, uh, Craig Unkrich, a.k.a. Mr. California, and he was kind enough to send, send in some amazing stuff for this episode. And I should also say, on top of the, the amazing interview with E. Brent Bentley O'Brien, we also got our hands on a copy of Zoogs's autobiography called Clams in a Glass. So <laughs> we've got Zoogs covered. Yeah, finally. Yes. Zoogs is going to be properly documented. Yes. After this and four more episodes. Yeah. So thanks to Laura and Aaron for hooking me up with that Clams in a Glass book. It's something else. And uh, it's written in two parts. Part one was written in 1984, and part two is subtitled The SST Years and was written in 1988. So I was kind of combing through that, trying to, I guess, sum up you know, what Zug was talking about. If you read like the liner notes to this and the back cover... There's a lot of insane stuff about his liquid Moamo yeah. phase. And then Mr. California came through with a, a great summary of it. So this kind of sums up what he's talking about. And if you look on the back of the LP, it says, Mutatus Mutandus 2, 
120186 to 113087. And this is this is what Craig said to kind of sum all that up. Zug's use of the Latin term mutatus mutandus referred to a change in attitude and a focus on health and losing weight and involved intense quote meditation, contemplation and constipation. So it was <laughs> Oh man. So it was part shtick. It was a period of about a year, circa 1984, when Zugs went on a diet and lost almost 100 pounds. He also referred to it as the Moamo Incubation Period, and is explained in detail on the album Interim Resurgence, which is one of those four episodes we'll be getting to in about 20 episodes from now. He gained almost all the weight back, which prompted Mutatus Mutandus Phase 2, which is what we're in with this record. I don't think he lost much weight at all the second time. During part one, Zooks had his apartment hallway lined with Polaroids of himself over time with no shirt on, showing the progress of, of the diet. Of course, he never referred to that as phase one, only mutatus mutandus, because he didn't know there would be a phase two. Hmm. Make sense? Slightly more sense. I found a cool thing about the SST years in his book, and I don't know if Craig mentioned this in our interview. He probably did, but just in case he didn't, he does mention how he got on SST in his book. Alan Eugster, who played violin on the album Your Future If You Have One, and knew Chuck Dukowski, he ended up setting up a meeting with Zoogs and Chuck. And according to the book, within days, owner of SST, Greg Ginn, called Zoogs Rift with the news that we could start making records together. Yeah, we should say, too, like, we are fans of Zoog's Rift on this show. Oh, big time. And yeah, we love his stuff, but it is it can be really crazy, too. Oh, yeah. And this album is really out there, too, and the concept behind it is really out there, too. So try and hang on with us. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so they did the Island of Living Puke, embarked on a West Coast, or embarked on a U.S. tour, which was according to the book, a complete disaster. Not according to Ed, though, as we're here. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll hear, that, you know, we'll hear that right away. In the book, it says, because of the fact that the tour was such a nightmare, I had more than enough material to draw from for my upcoming 1987 LP, Water. So why don't we kick it over to the interview? We'll hear Ed's take on the tour and, and the recording of this album, then we'll come back. Let's do it. Bring on the Moamo. All right, so we're joined on the podcast today by E. Bentley O'Brien. Ed, thanks for being on the podcast today. Hey, my pleasure. So we're talking about Zoog's Rift, in particular the album Water, but why don't you take us back, how did you get involved with Zoog's in the first place? How did you meet him? Well, it was a cold and stormy night, <laughs> and actually um, a guy named uh, Brick and his wife Phyllis uh, had been mentioning this band. I'd seen a, seen a review of them in the reader. This is back when Matt Groening was a uh, music critic. So usually if the reader said something was pretty good, it was. Right. And they described this band and they described Zoogs and he sounded positively frightening. I mean, you know, like mean and mean and cruel and, you know, horrible and stuff. So I went and saw him and met Zoogs and he was surprisingly nice. And the band was just amazing. I mean, it was, 
you know, everyone always did the uh, Beefheart Zappa comparison, and it's like, yeah, and the complexity and everything it compared, but it was its own thing. And it was just incredibly entertaining and very tight and, you know, musical. So, you know, became friends, started going to shows, and then he asked me to be on Interim Resurgence doing a little vocal part, did that, and then he asked me if I wanted to play bass. I'd been in a band that he liked with Brick and, you know, with Brick or Bill Wall. What band called was that? Renfield Brick. Okay. And he liked us. So what, what kind of music that's was that? how that all came about. We were almost what you would call proto-grunge. Hmm. And this was back in 1984. Um, it was basically, we were doing just a big rip on stadium rock. I mean, it was it was decidedly cruder than what came later, but the concept was was kind of the same. But, you know, we were pretty, pretty, pretty funny. You did, know, did you do really a record? Loud. No, we never got a chance. We were supposed to do a little something on uh, Mystic, which did the uh, We Got Power and yep. a bunch of the bunch of the L.A. punk, early L.A. punk, hardcore type compilations. And we broke up before that. Hmm. We unfortunately had a our lead guitarist or our guitarist turned into a <laughs> ended up turning into a Nazi, and it's like, eh, I don't think this is so good. Yep. <laughs> okay, so you you joined Zoogs, and you played on the Island of Living Puke album. I did. I played on Island of Living Puke, and I played on, uh, I was on Interim Resurgence, right. and I was on Water, and played some guitar on Water, too. And then uh, did the, uh, what was it, the... Um, uh, the Elvis Costello number that was on Looses and Clams, right? Uh, High Fidelity, right? And that was High done Fidelity. with the, that was done with a touring band. So you played on the Shitheads Across America tour, right? Okay, I sure did. I need to know about that tour. What can you tell me about that? Was uh, initially it was supposed to happen about six months earlier, okay. and um, we went ahead and we got ready to do that tour. Um, you know, six months ahead and things changed. We had, I think it was a bunch of uh, booking uh, conflicts. Hmm. So we set out to do it about six months later and it went off pretty good. We had some cancellations. Of course, you know, we were one of those bands that wasn't super well known, right. but we ended up having some really good shows. You know, one of the funniest things, of course, was... Um, yeah, Purple Rain had been out, so we go to play uh, go to play Minneapolis at a place called Seventh Street Entry. So we go driving up to the place, and we drive up really what ends up being the First Street part of it. And we knock, and it's like, oh yeah, come on in. We go in, and it's the stage from Purple Rain. It's the club. <laughs> it's like, whoa, yeah, this is great. And it's like, yeah, you're playing back in that little room. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, we got. Uh, <laughs> it was fun. I mean, it was just, it was the type of thing, it was almost, it was almost like the Tom Sawyer, you know, Huckleberry Finn ex experience. Uh, Sharky and I were in a little tiny truck driving along, and there was lots of, lots of illegal adult nonsense, and, <laughs> you know, we made it through without getting arrested, without running over any busloads of nuns or anything like right. that, but it was a four-piece. Um, yeah, it was Richie, Zoogs, Sharky, and myself. Okay. And, uh, 
Richie and Zoogs and Zoogs' wife and kid went in their Cutlass Supreme, <laughs> which they ended up blowing up in Texas, and they had to take a bus back home, and that pretty much put an end to the tour. Yeah, yeah, Zoogs, uh, Zoogs was funny in that he could be, he goes on this tour across the United States, he eats nothing but Denny's, and they stay at Motel 6 the whole time, and they're miserable, and of course his wife came along because, you're not going to go out and have fun every night without me <laughs> Right. So, I can just imagine it was like constant bickering right. across the entire country. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, it was kind of a three-ring circus when we came to town. It was pretty funny. Not really the ideal situation for touring with a with a rock band. Not for them. For Sharky and me, we had all kinds <laughs> of fun. We stayed on people's couches, and we partied, yeah. you know. <laughs> we took the back roads, you know. It's like, hey, look at those idiots. <laughs> you, know? you would definitely have a different perspective. I've heard the tour described, you know, as a complete catastrophe. A lot of times, okay, a lot of it is, how do you take it? You know, it's, right. did I ever expect that we would ever get really big doing that stuff? No. Right. Was I happy because I was doing something I felt artistically satisfied with? Absolutely. So, you know, it's, uh, you've got to, you've got to kind of take these things in perspective. I mean, yeah. this wasn't the hippie movement we were in. This was more like being a beat poet and beat poets didn't get rich. You right, know, they did sure. their stuff, you know. They suffered or they enjoyed making their art, but they really, if you got something published, hell, man, you were a, success, you were a screaming success. I wanted to see my name on a record, you know, a piece of plastic you could throw on a record player. You know, at that point, it's like, hey, you know, I've really done something. Got to go on tour? Holy crap, that's amazing. You know, and I got back, and then I got uh, hired by the label to be head of advertising. So, I mean, shoot. It was like a dream. How many people get to do that stuff? I mean, it was it was amazing. You got hired by which label? SST. Oh, yeah. Really? I was. I did all the. I did all the print ads for them. I was head of advertising. Oh. After we got back, that's kind of why I fell out of the band. Hmm. How long did you do that for? Two years. Oh wow. Yeah, I worked there for. So I knew. You know, I knew everybody. Hmm. How? But did... I did the ads for everyone from like slovenly to Soundgarden. So when you say you did ads, what what exactly did you do? All the all the zine ads, the Rolling Stone ads, the Rip ads, I, you know, all the print advertising. You laid them out. Yeah, I laid them out. How? I wrote some of the copy, not much, but some. How did you lay them out? By hand. <laughs> yeah. Using the photocopier. I, I now I would get you know I would have the typeset. Was a lot of uh, a lot of exacto knife work. Right. And a lot of uh, modifying photocopies. I mean, like the HR ads show a picture of his face, and it's all rendered in black and white. And basically, I ran his press photo through the photocopier about five times and sat there with a uh, bottle of what's known as Doc Martin's Whiteout, which is like a real opaque white kind of water-based paint mm -hmm. and a tiny brush and then a rapidograph and turned it into what looked like a black and white drawing. Now, I did that with a bunch of things. Uh, there was the second Screaming Trees record, which had such a muddy co cover when you tried to convert it to black and white, I had to actually pretty much completely redraw the thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was, you know, all those borders were hand-drawn, you know, very precise stuff. Yeah, it was pretty cool. 
it was like a dream come true for me. I got to do stuff that nobody gets to do. No kidding. You know? how, how did you get the gig? Um, well, I had been an advertising design major in college. Okay. And I dropped out to become a big punk rock star. <laughs> That's when I was in Renfield Brick and Toxic Era and all these fun bands. So, so, you know, I got into the punk scene like back in 79. See, I was in uh, high school in Orange County. I went to El Dorado High, so I had Mike Palm from Agent Orange in my uh, driver's ed class. I sat next to James Levesque in sophomore English, who was a bass player. Steve Soto from the Adolescents was my wrestling partner. I gave the Adolescents their first show at a place called the, at the Scout House in Yorba Linda. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah they, I mean, it was a tight thing. There weren't a whole lot of us, so it, it was weird. You know, you, these were just people you hung out with. You know, we all like weird, noisy music. So what kind of bands was, um, was Zooks playing with on the... On the, the we tour. were, um, it just depended. Yeah. I mean, it depended on what was booked. Um, I'm trying to think. We played with, um, oh, what was it, the Ice, uh, the Frozen Mice or something like that in North Carolina, and they were really cool. Mm-hmm. guy from that band made his own um, little boxy acoustic instruments. Um, gosh, I wish I could remember their name, but they were kind of obscure. We played with Plan 9 oh, in yeah. Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, um, when we played Chicago, it was just us. And it was freezing cold and snowing and nobody showed up. When we played Madison, it was just us. Mm. I mean, yeah, from a, like a commercial standpoint, it was a horrible mess. <laughs> you know, I think we, the guy, the guy in Arizona who booked us, booked us because he just loved the band. Right. And as a matter of fact, I think that was Austin, Texas, too. You know, it's uh, probably the biggest band we played with on that tour that I remember. You know, I was doing a lot of acid back then, so you got to forget <laughs> my memory. But um, it was probably Plan 9. The people that were coming up to see you, did they know the records? Yeah, yeah. That was what was really weird is, um, like Madison, this one girl was like, Hey, E. You know, she would call me, people would call me E, and it's like, E? Who's, oh, that's me. <laughs> you know? People weren't calling you Celtic Runes? <laughs> well, see, that was the album before. Right. Now, right. see, people would call me Celt. People uh, people who knew me from before that, I'd been called Celtic Runes for a while, so people would call me Celt. Right. You know, which, you know, like I say, once again, is one of the greatest, you know, dumb rock and roll names that <laughs> anyone's ever thought of. It's pretty <laughs> <I> mean, awesome. <laughs> well, see, that was from Renfield Brick, and our guitarist's uh, given name was Chuck Berger. Okay. That was his given name, which is a pretty awesome name, but no, he had <laughs> to come up with a stage name of Charles Joseph Renfield III. And our drummer went by brick wall because he was like six five, and then there was me, and he came up with Celtic Runes. So all our uh, stuff would say Fe- Renfield Brick featuring Celtic Runes on Sonic Fuzz bass. So you know, on, on this, you play electric bass, and you also do a knife solo. What's that all about? Okay, okay, the knife solo. If you go to the end of side one, there's a number called You Do. Yep. And that has Dee Dee on it. And what it what it is is uh, Dee Dee had this script that she read out, while Scott Colby tickled the hell out of her. Right. <laughs> and then over top of that, I use Zoog's wah wah fuzz pedal 
and I played my bass using, oh, what was the name of it? It's an old hickory uh, nine-inch butcher's knife. And if you take one of these things, they're carbon steel. I was in my apartment back in those days just fooling around. I used to play bass through a big muff a lot, and I had it hooked up. And I took the back of the knife, the flat part, right. and bowed it across a string. And what it did was it made this the sound that you hear, except it sounded more like a B-29 bomber. But it would be in the exact pitch of where you had the knife placed. You would just bow it. And, you know, and it was amazing sounding. And, you know, you put it through a wah-wah pedal or delay, it was, it, you know, for the time it was pretty mind-blowing. Right. So I did that, and then you had, of course, Dee Dee reading that ridiculous passage. Okay. So this was recorded by Mark Myler at Trigon Studios. Uh, Right, and we used uh, Fostex 8-track that recorded 8-tracks onto a quarter-inch tape, all going, you know, in one direction, so it used the full quarter-inch. You're talking about, you know, doing things like running a you know, using the knife and going through a wah pedal. It sounds like maybe you had some some time to experiment when you were recording this album. Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, I experimented all the time. I mean, I did, I would, even when I lived at home in high school, I would experiment just doing feedback sounds and stuff like that. I had echoplexes and, you know, I used tape machines. And I was really influenced by a lot of like the German art rock and mm-hmm. um, you know Eno and you know King Crimson and all this you know like long haired stuff and I still love it yeah you know so I was really into especially since you know it was such a do it yourself low budget type of thing you know when I was coming up that you know you you got the most out of everything you were looking for something new you didn't want to sound like Kansas for God's sake right. <laughs> You know, so you were constantly looking, and you had all these influences. Like you know, you gotta you gotta think about it. When like Public Image Limited came out with the second edition, I mean that was like music from Mars. It was so bizarre. Yeah, and you know, Gang of Four's first record, and you know, all that stuff was a huge influence because it was it was just so arrestingly um, interesting, and the dissonance worked. And then of course you you know. You mate that with like trout mask replica and lick my decals off baby by Beefheart and you know we're only in it for the money you know by Zappa and you know various other things it's you really wanted to experiment yeah that's what it was all about well and even some of the SST bands like Slovenly did a lot of that kind of stuff as well by this point certainly yeah certainly you know. There was a lot of that experimentation going on. And, you know, of course, you know, of course, you even look at, you know, Sonic Youth. Yeah. You know, there were a whole lot of bands that were doing what Sonic Youth was doing. Yeah. You know, they fortunately were able to, you know, really just carry that on. They were where they were at the right time. They were able to do it and not really have to worry as much about money as some people. And they took it seriously. I mean, that's a lot of it. They took it seriously. You know, even even something like um, Lawndale. I mean, it's they're pretty amazing in what they were doing. There's, you know, compositionally, that stuff's pretty, pretty out there. It's pretty great. Yeah, it's true. There was so much to be influenced by early on. At least, you know, growing up in Orange County, 
being in Orange County in L.A., the thing that you noticed was is that, one, you didn't have to have any experience to get in a band. You know, you just started playing. You know, it's like I started playing, I got a got a guitar, and I, I wrote a song. You know, I, I looked at some chords and wrote a song. And then just kept going from there. If I'd been born someplace else, I never would have had the chance to do what I did. But we were lucky, and everyone listened to tons of stuff. So there was basically nothing was really out, you know, off limits. Even once you got into hardcore? Well, you think about it. You know, it's, you know, Circle Jerks did a tribute to Karen Carpenter, for God's sake. Yeah. I mean, it was funny. It was a send-up, but still, you know, they had to listen to the stuff, didn't they? That's right. <laughs> and you couldn't help but listen to it growing up. So, yeah, even once you got into heart, and matter of fact, just plain old hardcore was it was pretty, you know, could be pretty formulaic. There were a lot of sound-alike hardcore bands. It's true, yeah. You know, and then you had stuff like Black Flag, which was groundbreaking. I mean the atonality of what they were doing and, and just the the song structures were really different. They had a really spare industrial sound, which yeah. a lot of other bands never really matched. You take a look at a lot of them, and, you know, of course, the Minutemen were really out there. Mm-hmm. They were, yeah. You know, you know, you wouldn't really call the Minutemen a hardcore band. No, you wouldn't. Though they played really short, fast songs. So it was it was a pretty amazing time period. In some ways, it was one of the last times when it was really anything goes as far as as far as music. You know, um, one of the things I notice nowadays, and I, you know, of course, I'm living near Nashville, and with my job, I'm around a lot of people in the music industry, and then I go and check out guitars here in Nashville, and what I notice is. The, the people are really concerned with playing everything note perfect. Mm. But I don't think any of them can improvise. Or ma- yeah. Not many of them. And not many of them write much of anything. You know, it's like I've got these cool licks, I put them in here, plug it in there. It's all rather safe. Well, I think that is a response to what audiences want, you know. It's, oh, yeah. it's crazy Absolutely. how many audiences want to go and hear a band reproduce the album perfectly yeah. they don't want experimentation or jamming which I'd, i've never understood well you know then again we were raised at a different time yeah i i think a lot of these kids would be really floored if they heard a uh, you know an audience tape of led zeppelin i remember playing one once when i worked for the paper out here and uh guy I worked with, I said, so what do you think of that? And he says, it sounds like a garage band playing Led Zeppelin. I said, yep, <laughs> that's what they sounded like. They sounded like a garage band. Because on stage, all they really had, they didn't have all this production. And, and Timmy Cage was a slot miser. Yeah. And occasionally you get moments of brilliance, and then you have like, gosh, that was harsh. <laughs> yeah, know? people don't realize with Led Zeppelin because, you know, all you all you hear is the you know, the 20th take on the record or whatever, you know? Right, and the stuff is so, you know, beautifully recorded. I yeah, mean, you know, you can't, you can't listen to that and not appreciate it. It's like, man, this is really well done. Yeah. But it, it, they never sounded like that live. But Zoogs, on the other hand, now what you hear on that record, that is what we sounded like. 
because we actually, when we recorded this stuff, and I don't know if Craig told you about it, but when um, we went in the studio and did, let's say, Alan the Living Puke, that was pretty much the entire band without Henry Kaiser doing it all in one take. Hmm. Water was like that. Everything was basically one take. The only thing that I recall doing multiple takes of, I know we had a couple of things that we had to adjust, but uh, Beak took three takes because the first time we did it, it was 40 minutes long. Wow. When you recorded something like Beak, would that, was that recorded in one, pa- you know, like one complete pass? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It does sound live. It like it has a, it has a live sound to it. It is. Yeah. It was the third take. And that was the shortest version we ever played of that. Hmm. It was very improvised. I mean, I was just floored by the bass turnaround I did at the, at the end of that because it sounds so tied up and put together. And it's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was pretty lucky, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but that was the only time it ever sounded exactly like that. Hmm. Otherwise, it would go on. Like I said, the first take was 40 minutes. I read somewhere that one of the songs was inspired by uh, getting lost in Barkyville. <laughs> oh, I, I know yes, you were in yes, a separate that's vehicle. Part of so. the, yeah, Barkyville and Mars. That's They're in Pennsylvania. I still joke with people from Pittsburgh about it. It's like, oh, you been to Barkyville or Mars lately? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's where Zoog's car started blowing up, uh-huh. too. He took okay. it to a mechanic. And, you know, of course, he could be pretty stubborn. So it's like, you know... If he didn't like advice, he wouldn't take it sometimes. And there was some advice he was given. I don't remember exactly what, but he probably should have taken it. But <laughs> ah, he didn't know much about cars. So, you know, no one died, yeah. you know. <laughs> Zoogs was Zoogs. I mean, you couldn't hold it against him. He was he was a great guy. Did you keep in touch you with know, him after you left the band? I did for a while, but, you know, it's... uh. Now, see, what I do for a living right now will explain why I didn't keep in touch with him after a while. Now I'm a drug and alcohol counselor. Uh And it's just, um, yeah, it started getting bad, and we kind of lost touch there. Right. You know, uh, it started kind of getting the best of me, and then, you know, I'd go that way, and then I'd get a little better, and then go that way and get a little better, and now I've got some time, and it's nice. You know, now I'm helping folks out, you know. Well, congratulations. And it's not a bad, oh, shoot, man. Yeah. Doing it at probably one of the best treatment facilities in the country. So it's a good place to, good place to uh, learn how to do it. Right. And it's, it's a problem that's not going to, uh, you know, it's a problem that's not going to go away. So. No, unfortunately. Know, people it's... have been there to help out. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, it's just but a real now epidemic. I'm playing again, so you're playing again. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't played in 30 years, and as soon as I got, you know, sobered up, I got some guitars and stuff. And did you play music after your after Zoogs? I tried doing a couple things on my own, but things were just getting to the point where it was like, I don't know. You know, things were falling apart for me. I yeah. think a lot of it was, yeah. You don't do, you don't do that much that much those that many psychedelics without them having an effect on your emotional state after a point and 
you try switching stuff and everything. I mean, you know, why I didn't end up in the street or anything by any means, but uh, I went on for years going, oh, if I just smoked pot, eh, if I just drank. You know. And fortunately, I had people who stuck beside me, and, you know, I was able, till the very end, I was able to work and do that, but it got to the point to where, yeah, if I'd kept on, I'd be dead. Yeah. And I'm really fortunate. Now, so, if, I, if I want to scour the internet for some of your work uh, for SST, does anything stand out for you, something that I that you were really proud of that we should be having a look for? As far as, like, the ads or anything? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Henry Kaiser's ad was, I was really proud of how I was able to pull that together just because it took so much handwork. All the type is cut up and individually laid out. But the one that he had for, what is it, um, I think I even wrote the blurb on that one. Hmm. It was his second one. It wasn't the crazy backwards alphabet one. It was... Um, Devil, Devil it, in the it, Drain, maybe? It was. His, yeah, 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 I think that's the one. It's the one that had, uh, let's see, had Dark Star on it. I mean, I think, you know, looking back at it now, it all looks horribly dated and pretty simplistic, but it is what it is. I had a magazine that I was a partner in after that called L.A. Rock Review, and it was like, by that point, hair bands were coming in, but I, I think the artwork was okay for what it was. It's just, it, things are so crude back then compared to now. Back, you know, that time, it didn't seem so crude, and now I look at it, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> well, but a lot of people now are probably trying to recreate that look, you know, digitally. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. What's what's really kind of odd is it was the '80s, and it's it's weird just how much of the '70s sensibilities carried over to then. It felt like you it felt like you were doing something a lot more modern than what took place in the '70s. And it's like, yeah, looking at this, I can see a little bit of '70s. And we're always part, you know. It, we've got influences that we don't necessarily have control of, and that's okay. I think that's probably what makes each of us into you know unique. We have different things we've experienced in life, and it's just being able to tap into it and not try to completely throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, yeah, we had a good time on, uh, I think water was, I liked water because it was just, it was probably the fewest musicians Zoogs had on any of the, you know, especially later things. Now, I, I loved Island of Living Puke because it was just, it was amazing how we pulled it all together and, in at Radio Tokyo and did all that stuff in one take because it was such a big band. But um, yeah, I mean it was an amazing time, and, and you figured it would all last forever, but it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Ed, thanks so much for talking to me tonight. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh no, it was all it was my pleasure. All right, well there you have it. Thanks very much, Ed. We must live the liquid. <laughs> yeah thanks Ed it was great having Ed on and uh, awesome guy and awesome interview too okay so a few more things about this record that I got from Craig so the players on this album were Craig Uncrich aka Mr. California uh, on and Sonic Mirage digital sampling keyboard which I, I actually looked up what that thing looks like and it's it's pretty cool it's not as like Space Age as some of the earlier synths, like the ARP 6000, 
that he played, that Zoogs, he talks about buying an ARP 6000 when they first came out. And I don't know if you remember when I came to your house earlier this summer to see Iron Maiden, when I came to your city, I went to that National Music Museum, I think is what right. it's called, or National Music Center, and they have an insane collection of synthesizers in that in that center. And like about 30 of Getty Lee's basses as well. But they actually have an ARP 6000 in there. And it's, it's huge. It looks like, uh, you know, it's the size of like an organ or something. And it's got all those plugins and faders and, and uh, dials and stuff on it. It's pretty far out looking synthesizer. Uh, also on this album, Ed O'Brien, of course, on bass guitar. John Mako Sharkey on Korg synthesizer. Richie Haas on drums. Zoogs on vocals, guitar, and he also plays the Mirage on a few tracks. Mark Myler, who recorded it, does MIDI programming and sequencing. And then Dee Dee Resch and Scott Colby as guests with bit speaking parts, which we'll get into when we go through the tracks. Craig says it was a smaller unit, unit at this point. Fewer musicians did most of the work. Recorded at Mark Myler's 8-track studio in Canoga Park. Uh, we did a few shows with the LP lineup. The last few gigs, Willie Lapine joined on bass, and Zoog started moving Ed towards guitar. And Willie was pretty much a regular player from 1987 until the very end in 2002 or so. Everyone was sick during, the ha during half of the creation of this record. Colds and flu, and they were all quite over-medicated at times. <laughs> <laughs> he, do he does tell a story about... Uh, one of the support shows in Goleta, California, and Richie Haas and his girlfriend were, were detained minutes before the band was set to go on stage. The VW bus was owned by Rich and occupied by he and his girlfriend. It was rocking back and forth, much to the chagrin of the law enforcement officer. Not sure what happened, but the band eventually went on stage. The show must go on, <laughs> right? Here's a cool uh, quote from Zoogs uh, from the book. Water was originally a joke I was playing on an SST employee, trying to make him question my sanity. While we were doing a U.S. tour the year before, I thought up this whole Beverly Hillbillies routine, and it all took off from there. Just what the world needs, another Zoogs Rift concept album. <laughs> Let's do the tracks, Ryan, because I got some great stuff on that. Hit it. History Lesson, Part 2. Shall we start with Prelude to Barkyville? Yeah, that's kind of the, the the title, I guess, for Side 1, right? And if yep. you you read the insert, it talks all about Barkyville. And I think I asked Ed O'Brien about Barkyville in the interview. Yeah, I tried reading the insert, and it is like... It's not easy to follow. It's all over the place, hey? Yeah, man. Yep. Like, wow. Okay, so the first the first song is called I'll Rip Your Brains Out. This is the one where he's screaming. It's one of the only ones with vocals, actually. Most of this album's instrumental. Yeah. He's talking about Teddy coagulating on the floor. <laughs> he's saying stuff like, When I asked where Teddy was born, you said he was hatched from an egg. I like when he's going, like I think, I don't even know if this is what he's saying, but it sounds like he's going... He keeps going, this ain't no cornfield, Teddy. 
I like uh, Ed. He he starts uh, breaking out some shortening bread on the bass. Yeah, it goes into the shortening bread riff. This is the song where he's talking about Granny and Jethro and Ed, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the the Beverly Hillbillies song. Craig described it to me as Beverly Hillbillies meets Timothy Leary. The line, Jethro's cooking up some acid for Eddie and Greg. Eddie is Ed O'Brien, and Greg is Greg Schroendinger. Craig says, this is all obviously fiction, but not sure it is if, you know, Ed sounds like he was... He was partaking, put it that way. Uh, There's a cool blog called Music for Maniacs that I think we mentioned on the last zoog's episode where he there's a lot of zoog's riff stuff on there and here's what he says about this song another example of riffs trademark outrageous surrealism in this case sending the tv show beverly hillbillies into a caligula like orgy okay track two ryan jerome arizona yes Cool little instro, interesting yeah. time signature on this one. Sounds like something off of like a Doctor Who show or something like that. Or like some quirky horror comedy, like, you know, Reanimator or, or you know, one of those kind of movies. Yeah, it sneaks up on you and turns into a pretty killer riff, actually. Uh, here's from Craig. A tiny town which Zoog's Riff drove through on the U.S. tour. Zoog's had me use a sample of a ringing telephone for the melody. It had something to do with the desolation in this small town and the idea of someone calling a resident on the phone and the phone keeps ringing because no one is around, if I recall correctly. Okay, track three is World of Depravity. This is the one that's got in brackets behind it, MIDI programmed. Yeah, it's some pretty relentless pummeling of MIDI sounds. Yeah, it's got programmed drums for sure. And here's from Craig. He says, I just now discovered that when Zoogs released Water as a CD on his SCI label in the late 1990s, he rename, renamed the song to Of Little Consequence. I have no idea why he renamed it. Most This is mostly Zoogs improvising on the Mirage. It was probably layered with a Casio CZ-101 via MIDI. I believe all the percussion is coming from the Mirage. So, like, no drum machine, you know? Yep. Track four. Oh, those secret Marines. This is our third, and I'm guessing not our last encounter, Ryan, with the secret Marines. Yeah. <laughs> I think we, didn't we encounter them on the island of Living Puke? At yep. least once. There. At yep. least once, yep. <laughs> it's kind of like a repetitive, off-kilter rhythm uh, with... It's either guitar or a synth, I can't even tell, kind of soloing over top. Yeah, it's a lumbering shredder. Yes, it is a lumbering shredder. Yes. Craig calls it the first instrumental in the Secret Marines series, and it features Craig sounding like a marimba on the Mirage. Track 5, Getting Late at Grace Park. It's a cool short instro. Uh, the live band, at least it sounds like a live band, it makes a big difference for me. Yeah. Craig says, Laura Rift confirms that this refers to Grace Lord Park in Boontown, New Jersey. Craig missed a rehearsal, so he wasn't able to play on the studio cut of this track. Track six, You Doot. Pretty gross story that uh, Dee Dee's telling, I 
really hope it's not true. Uh, here's from Craig. Didi Resch was Greg Lloyd's girlfriend. Greg had a band called Schrondinger's Band and played around infrequently. I think they were from the San Fernando Valley. And he also says, I attended the recording of You Dude. Didi was reading her part, sounding somewhat bland and straight. Zoogs got an idea and asked Scott Colby, who was standing by, can you go and tickle Didi, or words to that effect. Scott reluctantly agreed. The whole thing lasted about three minutes. That is why she is giggling throughout the whole cut. Scott was constantly tickling her. Okay, flip it over, and we've got the mongoloid Middle America side. And it starts with like a, a track with three kind of, what do you call these, sweets in it or something? This is, uh, I'm pretty sure this is like the beak suite, and there are three movements within the suite. Okay, I'm going to tell you about the, the play Zoogs wrote called Beak. This is from his book. During the summer of 1986, I wrote and directed a play. It was called Beak in six acts and was as ridiculous and, ob and obnoxious as I could possibly make it. <laughs> <laughs> we performed it twice, once in Reseda at Bebop Records and once at UCLA, where they closed it down in the third act and refused to pay us. <laughs> and it featured Greg Lloyd, who we just mentioned was in that band, uh, uh, what were they called? Schrondinger's band? Yeah. Alan Eugster, uh, Dee Dee was in it, Jesse Greenfield, and Richie Haas. And uh, apparently they got kicked out of UCLA after the third act. <laughs> and they weren't paid. <laughs> what a crime. Yeah. Wow. Do you have any uh, thoughts on the, the three movements? Roy Orbit's son is, is Beak A. I guess. Yeah, this actually, this three movement deal was my favorite track on the album. Roy Orbit's Son uh, is the first one. It's obviously named that because of the Pretty Woman riff that they play. Yeah. It's got a pretty cool ha Hammond sounding keys over the top of it, but I don't, it's like clearly a synth sound. The second part, the Mo Mofos part gets a bit more moody and cool and then it goes into the main theme which is my favorite part of the the track it kind of almost sounds like a reminding me of secret devo's cover of secret agent man a little bit yeah it's got a bit of a peter gunn type feel to it as well what'd you think of it of this track yeah beak yeah, yeah it, was, it was okay it's probably one of the most accessible tracks on the record yeah not my favorite, though. Interesting that it's yours. Yeah, Craig says no overdubs or effects that he's aware of. Sharky's playing the Ensonic Mirage on this song because it had a cool organ sample, so I'm assuming that's that Hammond sound that I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Okay, track two, then, I guess it would be, is Burn in Hell. Kind of a jazz noir song. This has vocals again, and some of them are pretty cool. You obeyed me, now it's time to pay. Microwave oven, human head, flambe. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second half kind of shifts into this more avant jazz uh, thing with, I'm assuming, Mark Myler on sax. Craig says, ominous timpani and organ samples dominate. It has a rock and roll ending sounding something like James Chance. 
Uh, the third track on side two, Diver Dan versus the Worm Gobblers. I, I wrote, this is a mercifully short instrumental. By this point, it's hard for me to tell if I wasn't looking at the grooves, like when the songs start and finish too, like after the beak suite, I guess. They, it could all, they all kind of blend into one another. But this one is the one that has like the, it sounds like, you know, programmed drums, double bass with a bunch of slapping and popping bass sounds too right yeah it was all midi this one according to craig oh okay it sounds like there's a slap bass in there but it's just the sample of a slap bass using the mirage keyboard okay it was apparently a tv show in the 1960s diver dan versus the worm gobblers i guess i i think diver dan is the show. diver dan yeah. i think there was like a uh um like a kid's toy called diver dan i think yeah. Programmed by Mike Ma Mark Myler, this one. Uh, and then Mongoloid Middle America, which is a cool track. Uh, inspired by events that happened during the Shitheads Across America tour. Uh, a str this is from Craig. A strong atmosphere of schmaltz and inbreeding. The sound of the tour boat is Mark Myler's lawnmower recorded at half speed. The female voice following the lyric about Papier, I think it's called, is from the movie Papillon. Papillon. <laughs> and the clip where a woman says to Dustin Hoffman, you'll be back, Papillon. <laughs> and that's sampled on the Mirage. And Craig says, and I, this is in the interview too, Mars and Barkyville are towns near Pittsburgh where the band got lost for several hours. This, oh. this is like I wrote a Disney ride to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure the tour guide is Scott Colby. That's what it says on the back of the LP. So I'm assuming this is Scott, like, doing the, you know, going sick, demented. Congratulations. You've just shown the rare courage to take this bizarre trip through Mongoloid Middle America. And yeah. now try to emotionally and psychologically prepare yourself for an odyssey from which you might never fully rec recover. Did you catch the Al Green reference in this song? Oh, the Take Me to the River thing? Yeah. Yeah. I nice. Did. Yep. At a boy. And then it pretty quickly devolves into like potty humor. Like there's lots of talk about daddy's dick going into cracks and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm surprised it took that long on this record to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The. The story Didi tells on You Dude oh, is... You Dude, yeah. That's, pre that's pretty rough, too. Okay, Ryan, and then the last track is Water. It's really short, one minute long. Kind of sounds like a Nintendo or something like that. Craig says, collage of tape manipulation, snippets of previously released melodies and archive recordings. And you were talking about having a hard time following this. I actually listened to it several times this week on Spotify. And I think it was re-released by Laura on Spotify. And there's a bunch of bonus tracks, live stuff on the digital version. Oh, no kidding. Uh, live versions of uh, Oh, Those Secret Marines, Getting Late at Grace Park, Mongoloid Middle America, Jerome, Arizona, and a whole bunch of other stuff from, from some other Zoogs albums. So that's out there if anybody wants to check it out. Before we get into the cover art, Ryan, I have a, a few reviews. Here's from that uh, 
that blog I was talking about, Music for Maniacs, written by this guy, Mr. Fab, much of this swell, well-produced release is instrumental, which is great, as it gives his prog, punk, jazz, weirdness, musicians, a chance to shine. Here's from Guitar Player Magazine. With a backup band called The Shitheads and songs with titles such as I'll Rip Your Brains Out and Diver Dan vs. The Worm Gobblers, expect strange and to some offensive lyric, lyric content as Zoogs oozes weird electric guitar over stilted rhythms and borderline anarchistic harmonies. That's a pretty good description. Yep. You want to talk about the artwork, Ryan? Because I got some cool stuff on that. Sure. I hope you're going to make me read the front cover as well. The front cover? Yeah. Yeah, read the front cover for us. I knew it. Here we go. It says, quote, Considering that our bodies are essentially comprised of 69.372% water and that we must constantly fight the opposing forces of gravity versus evaporation opening parentheses not to mention the horizontal pull of the earth's rotational axis closing parentheses it's no wonder why the human race is so hopelessly screwed up so that's on the front cover of this album <laughs> <laughs> that is the front cover that's it yeah yeah. yeah. Well, behind it, you can see as kind of a watermark is the word water. Yeah. But yeah, that's the front cover. If you look on Discogs, it came with a sticker on the front cover saying, featuring I'll Rip Your Brains Out and Mongoloid Middle America. So those were <laughs> like the hits, I guess. <laughs> Isn't it obvious? Yeah. As you mentioned, there is in a totally insane insert with including a brief historical background of the Ipiat, which I'm not even going to try to explain what that is. The Ipiat? I think that's what it is. Oh, Ipiat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Seems like it is a time, type of, you know, like a Homo sapien or Cro-Magnon or something like yeah. that, right? What's the one thing on their list of celebrities that Zoogs, Zoogs wants to plow or whatever? Uh, it's It says living female celebrities that Zoog's Rift would like to have sexual relations with. It's pretty It's pretty obscene. Okay, let's go through it, because I looked up who everyone is. I want to see how many of them you know. Uh, what? The actresses? Yeah, go through them. Oh, God. Oh, Christy McNichol is one. Okay, do you know who she is? No. Uh, she is most well-known for her being on the TV drama Family. Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, me neither. Uh, Number two is Adrienne Barbeau. Uh, she, do you know who she is? No, she was in the sitcom. <laughs> she was in the sitcom Maud with B. Arthur. I didn't know. I didn't know either. Okay, yeah. Number three is B. Arthur, whom yeah. I I do know. Yep, from Golden Girls, of course, yep. <laughs> and Maud apparently. Yep. Uh, number four is Natalie Wood. Okay, so Natalie Wood. Uh, was an actress who actually died in 1981, so that's the joke, I guess. She was not living when this album came out. Uh, by drowning, possibly murdered by her husband, Robert Wagner. Yeah. That's the allegation that some people make. Uh, number, number five is Corey 
Aquino. Uh, okay, also known as Corazon Aquino, who was the president of the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. This is so absurd. Uh, number six, it's written but then crossed out. It looks like it is John Revere. Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers. Okay, there you go. Joan Rivers. Right. Comedian. Yep. Number seven is Drew Barrymore. Yeah, Drew Barrymore was born in 1975, so she was 12 when this came out. Yeah. So we'll just move on from there. Yeah, it's pretty pretty disturbing. Yep. And then uh, eight is LaWanda Page. Okay, so she was an actress in Sanford and Son. So these are mostly like 70s shows, right? Yeah. And then there's no number nine. And then it goes to 10, which is Adrian Adonis. And you know who that is. Is it the wrestler? Yeah. 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 Zoogs is a huge wrestling fan. And in 1987, when this came out, uh, adorable Adrian Adonis had fought Roddy Roddy Piper at WrestleMania (laughs) 3. Kind of a big deal. Good good research, Brandt. Wow. I'm on it. Good research. Jeez, I can't believe you made us go through that list. The back cover, Ryan. I got an awesome thing from Craig Uncrich on that. The green stuff you see on Zoogs' head on the back cover is Vaseline that Zoogs mixed with his hair to provide some sort of liquid effect. He ruined over 10 bath towels before he was able to get it all out. <laughs> it looked to me, uh, when I was looking at it, I'm like, oh, that's ectoplasm. You remember like as a kid's toy when the Ghostbusters right. came out, you used to get these little, little jars of ectoplasm, like slime? Yeah. Uh, don't mess with Vaseline, I believe, were Zeus's last words on that incident. Look at his eyes. Yeah. Ooh, they're red. But Zeus is rocking a gold gym t-shirt, so yeah. he's working on it. Yep. He's working it. He's back into Mutatus Mutandus Phase 2. That's right. What else do we have? So also on the back cover are some... Pretty uh, pretty stunning pics of the guys in the band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Richie's mugging. So is Sharky. Richie looks like Gigi Allen without without poop on him or something. Jeez, man. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he? Oh, I need a break from Zoog's Rift. I don't <laughs> like Brant on Zoog's Rift. Jeez. I know who your uh, favorite is. Ooh, Sharky? Yeah. Oh, look at that. That is quite the puss. It looks great. <laughs> uh, let's see here. We should notice, too, uh, that you all already mentioned during the interview with Ed that he played electric bass guitar and knife solo. But Richie Haas is responsible, at least on the back cover, for drum kit and RH Factor. And Factor, the A, has got what above it, Brent? Umulets? Oh, sorry, Motley Crue Dots. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) They're called Motley Crue Dots. Right. Uh, Anyways. I prefer to call them Motorhead Dots, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then it says, um, 
Jonathan Mako Sharkey, he is responsible for Ron Jobs and Reenie. And then it says keyboards too, whatever that means. Uh, there's also a, a statement on the back here. It says, everything taking place on this record first manifested itself in the form of some very disturbing nightmares in the troubled head of Zoog's Rift. And then it goes into um, some credits, talks about how it was recorded in January 1987 by Mark Mylar at uh, his world-famous Trigon Studios in historic Canoga Park, California. Land of Enchantment, it says. Uh, it also says that Mark occasionally blows some all-caps mean sacks on this record. And Dady Resch adds that feminine touch. It's D-A-D-I-E Resch on here. Yeah, I'm just going by what uh, Ed referred to her as Dee Dee, So, yeah. yeah, but maybe that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. And then it says, Mr. Colby will be your tour guide. Yeah. So that fits with what you were saying. Um, in terms of him being a tour guide. Yeah. It mentions the other uh, Zoogs albums you can pick up too. Yeah. It has all six other ones on there. You want some Dead Wax brand? I sure do. Okay. I can only imagine. So side one says, drink this record. I don't want to. And then side two says, Listen to at safe distance. You see here, they all, both sides say K-Disc, but no initials to speak of on this one. That's it. Do we dare pick a ballot result for this record? We're going to have to. Yeah. Ballot result. Hit me, Ryan. I know you're going to pick Beak, and I'll support that, but I would actually go with Jerome, Arizona, because I think that's a good riff, and it reminds me of the parts that I like from the previous Zoog's Riff records that we've done on the show so far. Let's do that one. I don't, uh, I'm going to be honest with you. This is my least favorite of the three Zoog's albums we've listened to so far. Yeah, I agree. It didn't really grab me like the other two did. I didn't dislike it or anything. It just didn't blow me away like the other two. So yeah, I, I didn't, it, there was no strong contender for me. Okay. Well, I'll go with Jerome, Arizona then, because I think that that would fit great on a comp tape. All right. Well, th hey, thanks to Craig for sending all that stuff in, and thanks again to Ed O'Brien for being on the show. It was great having him. Totally. It makes a huge difference to have folks like that contribute because it really uh, it brings life to the record, which could seemingly seem very absurd and impenetrable, but... It, it gives you something to grasp onto when you're listening to the craziness. Yeah. Well, not only is the record crazy, like everything about this record is just so over the top and there's just so much going on. It's hard to even, even talking to two of the people who played on it, I still don't understand a lot of what was in Zoogs' head <laughs> when he was making this, you know? Yeah, I do. I do know. <laughs> Because I don't either. <laughs> but well, I, but I love, I love, like I kind of love him for it, um, especially on the other records. Like this isn't my favorite either. And uh, another reason where, where I'm just kind of going like where else but SST. Yeah. Who else so, is gonna 
put this stuff out by the liquid Moamo. <laughs> Ai Chihuahua. Yeah. Ryan, what's next week? Well, Brent, I don't know if you're keeping count, but next week is actually our 100th episode. Is it really? Yeah. Huh. And uh, we're, we've got a very signature SST band that we're featuring. It's the Meat Puppets record, Mirage. And we have got a special guest. Yeah. Spoiler alert, Ryan. I love that record. And we have Derek Bostrom on the podcast next episode. And it's a killer interview. Yeah, Bostrom is back into the puppets fold, and he's on Mojack, and can't wait. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.